We're in Matthew uh, chapter 28. Uh, this is it. This is the last um, the last week we'll look at Matthew as part of our Matthew study. Uh, our first uh, introductory lesson, uh, Dad taught it. I, I looked up on the, uh, the podcast. It was September 29th. So we've spent uh, well over a year going through Matthew. And uh, I think it's been really good. So we're going to, um, to wrap up today. Uh, for as thorough and as much detail as Matthew gives us, um, it, it, it just kind of goes out really quick, uh, quickly, I guess I should say. And so we begin um, in chapter 28. We looked last week as the women uh, went to the tomb uh, there had been a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord there appeared, and we we just celebrated the resurrection. And then we get these instructions in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, that's the women that were there, he said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So that it was the instruction. Uh, that they were given, and uh, we know a few verses from now that they took that to heart, and uh, and that plan was carried out. But then we have this uh, interlude, which we looked at a little bit um, before, and uh, we'll look at again briefly in verse 11. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So, um, working backwards, it says this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So just a reminder, Matthew was writing this about 30 years after the events had happened. Right? So when he says circulating through this day, that had been going on for 30 years. Does anybody remember what was going on 30 years ago? I, I mean, <laughs> this is pretty, definitely pre-COVID. You know, I, I was, I was in Kansas City, um, finished up our, my residency, um, I, Anna was two. Um, uh, you know, I had to rack my brain a little bit. I, I had to cheat, so I went online to see what was going on. 30 years ago. Well, apparently, that was when the internet went online. The World Wide Web started in 1990. Uh, things were rumbling uh, in Iraq, and it was just a few months after that that they invaded Kuwait, which brought on the whole Desert Shield thing. Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Margaret Thatcher finished up 11 years of being Prime Minister of the UK. Uh, 
Um, things were going on, all the shifts with the Baltic republics and you know the separation of many of those states from Russia was going on. And I thought this was interesting, which kind of coincides with the birth of the internet. The Encyclopedia Britannica saw its highest all-time sales in 1990. Um, Twelve years later, it would cease to be published. Um, there were like encyclopedia salesmen, right? Um, I think we had like, a, what was the other? We had a world book. There was a world book encyclopedia. I guess, I guess that salesman got to mom and dad first. And Compton's, yeah, Compton's encyclopedia. So I guess it, whatever salesman got to your house first, that was the one you got. And then um, I remember reading those things, and then like, like if you bought it in such a year, then you would get like an add-on every year, right? So they kind of had you hooked there a little bit. But it was either that or the library, right? Apparently, the number of librarians in the U.S. peaked at 1990. Right, which kind of makes sense, right? Because from that point forward, you could start to look stuff up yourself. Now, God bless all our librarians. I, I love libraries, but they're they're different, right? They're 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 different. In any event, thirty years after all this was happening, this story about the disciples stealing Jesus by night was still going on. There's an early Christian, Justin Martyr, who lived roughly 150 years after the birth of Christ. In his writings, he said that story was still circulating. Um, so this was, now, of course, if you think about this, I don't know, are there anybody that's been in law enforcement here? Anyone ever watched a crime show on TV? <laughs> Court TV, Judge Judy, I mean, any, any of those things. If you've even watched one episode of Judge Judy, you can see how faulty this little paragraph is, right? So, I, this is so funny. Why did the chief priests and scribes request a guard? So that they wouldn't steal the body, right? to keep the disciples from messing with Jesus' body. Ironically, they now become witnesses to the fact that there is an empty tomb and there's got to be an explanation for it. Um, for reasons that we, I think we touched on last time, um, they think this was Roman soldiers who had been assigned to the temple to become the temple guard. So they were Roman soldiers, but they were kind of under the authority of the, the leaders of the temple. That's why Pilate said to them when they requested him, well, you know, you've got, you've got soldiers, you know, go make it secure as you can. So, so this happens, they find up, you know, that he's gone they go into the city and they tell them what happened. So then they all get together. There were factions, you know, in the Sanhedrin. There, but, you know, nothing unifies people like a common, a common enemy. So they all got together and it said they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. 
not only had these soldiers failed to do their duty, uh, they had gone asleep at the watch, which apparently was definitely frowned upon. You could have been put to death just because of that. And they said, tell them his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, what is the number one thing wrong with that little lie? If they were asleep, how did they know they were disciples? You, you got to think they were in a rush, right? Is this the best they could do? You know, is this, is this as good as they got? Now, what do we know about the disciples? Were they known as being super courageous? Standing up against all accusations, ready to defend Jesus at every turn? No. So how likely is it, just as their leader has been slain, that they're going to get together and said, oh, we got this, we're going up against the Roman guards? How likely is it that the Roman guards, not just that all of them slept, but all of them slept so soundly they didn't hear this massive stone grinding along the little track? Anyway. You guys know. But they had to come up with something. So, again, the irony is these very people that they wanted to um, prevent a story from getting out actually became independent witnesses of what actually happened. And we know from the other Gospels, other details, that 75 pounds of spice that we talked about, think how much fabric it would have taken to contain all that around a body but yet all that was still laying on the ledge and the the face cloth that went over the face before the wrapping was folded up nicely and laid by itself how does that happen so not only are you going to roll the stone away not wake up the people totally unwrap the body Carefully wrap it all back up and lay it there. And then leave this nice and neat and say, okay, everything's nice and tidy. Now we can take the body and sneak on out. It just, you know, it would have taken a long time to do that, even if they'd have wanted to. Craziness. But Matthew puts this in here because he knew, here we are. You got to be thinking, he's writing this 30 years later, thinking, are we still talking about this? Is this still going around, I need to set the story straight. So here's what happened. Well, of course that's the story because they paid him to tell that story. Anyway. Verse 16. One of the most famous, in fact, probably the most famous passage of Matthew, aside from maybe the Lord's Prayer, Sermon on the Mount, that sort of thing. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. What's significant about the eleven disciples, about that number? Judas is missing. Last we heard, though, there might have only been ten. So what's also significant is that Peter, in spite of his denials, is included. 
He's back. Peter's back. They went to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. It's a neat study if you ever find yourself in Matthew in the coming months or years. You can go back and you can actually do a study of all the things that happened on the mountains in Matthew. Lots of things happened on the mountains in Matthew. Um, mountains generally in the Bible, it's an interesting study if you go and look at all the things that happened on the mountains. Um, some people think this may have been um, a large group of people um, based on verse 17. It says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, some translations might say some hesitated. So people have had pretty healthy debate on, okay, well, who is this some we're talking about? Does that mean some of the disciples, some of the 11? Or does the some mean some others who were there? Most people feel that this refers to some others. And that's why when Jesus, back in verse 10, tells the women, go tell my brothers where I'm going to meet me in Galilee. He didn't say, go tell my disciples. He said, tell my brothers. A, a more encompassing term, uh, a broader group of followers who had been with Jesus. And we know that there was a, a large entourage, more than just the 12, or in this case, the 11. So most people feel that when it says, uh, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You can't have people falling down in worshipping and also doubting. Also, the, remember the disciples were upfront witnesses. I mean, even Thomas, who we call <laughs> doubting Thomas, even Thomas was convinced, right? Because he said, unless I see his hands and, you know, well, she said, okay, here we go. So even Thomas was convinced. So when it says, and some hesitated, some doubted, this was probably the first time that this larger group of people had, I might go out. probably the battery, I'll speak up. This was probably the first time this is my loud voice when people can't hear in my office. <laughs> but this may have been the first time that many of the others got to see Jesus in the resurrected state. In 1 Corinthians 15, we always look at this at Easter. It says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Many people feel that this time when he appeared to more than 500 was this time and that the mountain that they met was probably the mountain where he fed the 5,000. It was an area that was conducive to large groups of people. Maybe there was an amphitheater kind of geography, um, but 
people have, this is somewhat speculation, but it does kind of fit. Um, the, from the other pieces of the puzzle that we know. So it says when they saw him and, some, and they worshipped him, but some doubted, that would make sense if you had a larger group of people, right? Because, and I, I like the alternative um, interpretation of that word. Apparently it's, it's also used, uh, hesitated. Because that's just human nature. It also, to me, seems to make sense of the truth of Scripture. Because if you were really just making this up, you would make it sound more sensational than that. Oh my gosh, the crowd just immediately recognized that Jesus was the Savior and all fell at his feet and you'd have it be less real. This seems more real to say some weren't there yet. And that's human nature, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not one of these cutting edge people to accept things. Um, some were like, it took them a little bit. They got there. They got there. But it it took them a little bit. And that's okay. And then we have these amazing verses. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we call this what? The Great Commission. Um, a commissioning is when you do what? You send people out. Um, you ever seen a commissioning for like military um, service? That's what happens, right? It's often, I mean, like when officers, when they get their commission, right? They, they not only are given orders about what to do, but now they have some authority, a, a rank, to go with it. Um, this is a commissioning. This is uh, telling them something. Uh, let me, I can find my notes here. I can tell I'm getting rusty. <laughs> I should follow my notes more often. Um, well, I may have to put it in the notes. There were... I guess I didn't write it down. One of the commentators I was reading made a point that that there have been a number of places in Scripture where there have been commissionings. Um, Moses, for example, was told, um, you know, do this for the for your um, the people that you're leading, and teach them to do all the things that I'm going to tell you to do. I gotta find this. Uh, 
let's see. I can't find. I want to waste time, but we know um, we know some New Testament commissionings as well. Um, Acts one eight, you know, uh, we know we know that one. You will receive power. You'll be my witnesses. You know that that sort of commissioning. Um, earlier in Matthew, when he's calling the disciples, he says, "Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men." So there there's some actions associated with this. Break it down. And Jesus came and said to them, focus on the word all. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them, verses verse 20, to observe all that I've commanded you. And then behold, I will with you all the days, always to the end of the age. This is pretty inclusive. When you say all, that doesn't leave a lot out. All authority in heaven is, and earth has been given to me. A while back, we looked at the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, Daniel has one of his visions it says this in verse 13 of Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed." That sounds like a prophecy fulfilled when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19 is this heart, 19 and 20, the heart of the Great Commission. I'm not, you know, a, a Greek scholar, but reading people who know this, they say that the only real command, so to speak, or imperative statement in these two verses is the word make. Make disciples of all the nations. That is the heart of the command. Everything else is part of the package that goes with it. When it says, go therefore, it's basic, basically as you're going, in the process of going, make disciples. As you're making disciples, you need to be baptizing them and teaching them. It comes with a package, but the key is focus on making disciples. Focus on making disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. So part of that is going to be baptizing them and teaching them. What was the significance of baptism? What's the significance today? What is that person who's being baptized basically saying? I'm dead to the old life. I'm rising to the new life. And basically saying in as obvious and a public way as possible, 
I'm aligning myself with Jesus. I am all in with Jesus. Mormons do this after death baptism, right? You've heard of this? There's some wacky stuff that Mormons do. It's, it'd be entertaining if it wasn't so tragic. How can a dead person make this profession of baptism? They can't. Baptism is something a person does that says, I'm aligning myself with this person. When, when John the Baptist was baptizing, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was, they were saying, I'm all in with what John's saying. I'm repenting. When people got baptized in Jesus' name, they were baptized. That's what was happening. So it says, part of making disciples is making authentic disciples who are going to align themselves with Jesus. They're going to be so in with the message, dying to this old way of life, going to this new way of life, that they're going to publicly admit it through baptism. And then the other part, teaching them. So you've made disciples, you've got an authentic believer, then what's your job? To teach them. What are you supposed to teach them? All the things that Jesus commanded. So what does that say? Jesus' words became the new law. Jesus' commands became what you were supposed to teach them. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament isn't important. It's foundational. It teaches us all about God and so forth. But their initial work was to teach all the stuff that they had been taught. They had been with Jesus for over three years. They were supposed to be teaching that. This disciples of all eight, all nations. The word nations there is where we get the word. It's a Greek word for ethnic or ethnicity. And some people have taken that, you know, this is very obvious that it, it's a word that in the Bible is mostly used of Gentiles. So the, the point is, it is a great commission. It's going all over. Galilee was, all, was called Galilee of the Gentiles. There was a, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was these, there was this, uh, it was a, a border area basically between Jews and Gentiles in that area. So this is, this is going to the nations. Now some people have taken that to such an extreme that they said, well, this means Jesus was done with the Jews. Well, of course not. Of course not. And if we didn't know for sure, we know from the first chapter of Acts that he said beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and then beyond. But certainly it did include the Gentiles and a broader area. This would probably have been news to the 500 people who were probably 99% Jews who were there with him on the mountain. 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are really close to celebrating what? Christmas. This season of looking forward to the birth of Christ we call Advent. This expectation. This was a book, right? Matthew wrote a book. He was not a dumb guy. He was influenced by the Holy Spirit, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he was telling a story. So in chapter 1 of Matthew, we have the genealogy of Jesus, and then in verse 18, we have, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his Mary when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came together, or before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Going down to verse 21, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in the first chapter, we see Matthew quoting Isaiah saying that there is coming a son. You're going to call him Jesus. He's going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in the last verse of the book, we have Jesus saying, I am with you always. The I am, the same I am that was part of creation, was the heart of creation, Moses at the burning bush, I am with you always. Here we have Emmanuel, God with us, to the end of the age, which includes now, right? It includes now. So, some people have said that all of Matthew is a guidebook on discipleship. If you look at it, what have we basically seen? We've seen Jesus come, and his purpose was announced in the first chapter. Very quickly, we see how he does what? Calls his disciples. We see him then do what? Demonstrate a holy life to his disciples. Teach a reinterpretation, basically, of the law to his disciples. Y'all were raised this way, but let me tell you, in this age to come, here's what that looks like in this new kingdom that we're building. Here's what that's going to look like. So his all of Matthew has been watching Jesus. How does he handle his critics? How does he handle those that are seeking? How does he handle those who need compassion? How does he handle 
those who are religious, pompous jerks. You know, how does he handle all these people? Well, they've seen this. So, we've got, I, it occurred to me as we were, as I was wrapping up, what would it be like if we had this commission and all we had to go by was Matthew, the book of Matthew? Would we have enough to do it? I think we'd have enough, right? We would really get to know Jesus because we got to know Jesus. We got to see, over this past year, we got to see him hang out with sinners. We got to see him hang out with children. We got to see him hang out with his buddies. We got to see him elevate women to a status that was very uncommon for that day. We got to see him interact with the high and the low. We got to see him interact with God the Father. Um, I think we'd have enough. So, our job, as we go through, maybe start to highlight those places where we've received commands, where Jesus commanded things, because those were the things that we're supposed to be focusing on. Which means that we'll probably de-emphasize some things that we tend to make a big deal that may not be as big a deal, right? We get hung up on whatever the hot topic of the day is when we're really supposed to be about Jesus. And when you put Jesus up there, the media becomes less important. Politics becomes less important. Government becomes less important, right? Because we've got Jesus to the end of the age. And we can look at everything through this. They were getting used to the whole resurrection idea, right? This was so new. I mean, thankfully, we do have Paul who helped put the resurrection in perspective for us. And through, like, Ephesians, we know this amazing power that that unleashed. But we had enough, even just with Matthew. So we're grateful for that. Um, I guess we'll we'll wrap up here. Um, any any thoughts from anybody about uh, our study over this past year? I think it's an accomplishment for all of us who've been with it with us. Um, it's I think it's it's great to go straight through. Um, and uh, I know I speak for Dad when we say we appreciate your faithfulness. Uh, those of you that have been with us this whole time. And for the comments, um, I mean, he and I both consider this a collective effort. Uh, the way that you guys stay engaged and, and support us um, is always appreciated. We'll close there. Um,